Blog Talk Radio. solutions-oriented talk radio show. Each month, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, This month, we have a special guest. We have uh, Dr. George Theo Harris. Uh, Welcome, George. Thanks, Brian. Um, George is is a professor and the department chair for teaching and leadership at Syracuse University. Um, he, his research focuses on issues of equity, leadership, inclusive service delivery in K-12 schools, has books. Uh, one we're going to talk a little bit about um, subject today, school leaders our children deserve, and uh, he's written uh, a principal's handbook for leading inclusive schools. And so Excited to have George today to talk to us about uh, leadership in Schoolhouse. Um, to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being a part of our family of over 5,000 listeners every month. And to new listeners, we're glad to have you, glad you joined us. And so, um, George, uh, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I guess the the first is I, you have a few different books, and um, as you probably know, um, part of at least part of my responsibility here at Teachers College is uh, in the principal preparation program, and right. I, I I know that um, it is certainly a challenge uh, training uh, both superintendents, but um, but also uh, in in your case training uh, school building leaders. Um, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. And and how that's related to uh, some of your research that uh, on on these issues of how how leaders the challenges that leaders face. Sure. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, you're right. I, I, I couldn't agree more that uh, that leadership preparation is obviously is a is a, is a really important area. That is in some ways very new, you know, in our country. We, you know, it's a field that's really evolved in the last three to four decades, um, and it's an area that faces lots of challenge, large because of the immense pressures that are put on public schools and public school administrators. Um, so, uh, it's. I'm also a little biased, and I probably share this with you, is that it's obviously incredibly important work. You know, one of the things we know about school leaders is that it's the tremendous sort of promise and power of of really sort of visionary and uh, and I would argue equity-oriented leadership for making uh, you know schools better places for a wider array of, of children who have historically and currently are underserved. But that's a real challenge, right? I mean, um, you know, we have a history of of trying to have universal education in this country that was built on an inequitable foundation, and so uh, we've spent you know decades and decades, and people would argue centuries of time, trying to get better at that. And I think arguably, as a nation, we've gotten better at that. We've gotten better at sort of understanding the leadership's role in that. Um, but we still have just such gross inequities in our, school, in our schools that I think are, are in my mind, uh, the most critical challenge for school leaders, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's no longer enough to think about being good, a good leader, right? Uh, 
a good manager or a good instructional leader, which we know is the role has changed to that in the last two decades. But mm-hmm. the leadership is really about um, if we're going to be seriously about education for all, we have to think about uh, leadership in terms of issues of equity, and that means yep. in terms of issues of justice, and in terms of diversity, and in terms of access, all those things. Uh, so right. I think that's a real challenge because that's not that's not the history uh, of leadership, and it's certainly it's not it's not the most successful part of 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 our of our national school system. Sure. Well, you know, I remember years ago. Uh, people talked about going into administration, you know, so it was, and, and a lot of the departments throughout the country used to be um, Department of Education Administration, and that evolved in, in, in most places to include, including where I am here at Teachers College, uh, um, to be areas of leadership. Um, right. As you see, what, what's the principal difference between the way um, uh, school building leaders were trained, you know, say 20 years ago, and how they're being trained generally now. Sure. Yeah, I think it's important to think about. I mean, I think in, in large part, you know, 20, 30 years ago, administration was a managerial job, right? You managed your school. And people would argue that you were a middle-level manager because you weren't ultimately in charge, right? You had probably had a superintendent or a board of education. You were a manager, right? You you, you perhaps did some hiring, you ran budgets, you did things like that. The school, you got the school to run. And one of the things we know is that is really a, a diminished view of what leadership needs to be. And as you said, right, we've evolved in sort of departments of educational leadership. We see leadership much more broadly now, right, that the leadership is certainly part of official administrative jobs, like the principal, like an assistant superintendent, like a director of instruction or special education, like a superintendent. But also leadership is a part of teacher leaders, right? You have department chairs. You have informal leaders who might be uh, reading coaches or math instructional specialists. Um, so you have a well, – we're understanding that leadership comes from lots of places. And so there's, there's a need to train those people, uh, whether or not they become principals or superintendents. There's a need to give people a different and a broader view of school districts, which I think is one of the most powerful things about educational leadership programs. Is what I hear consistently from students, both at Syracuse and around the country, is that their leadership programs transform their view about schools. Right? They mm-hmm. saw schools from their previous role, right? from their social studies teacher role, from their fifth grade teacher role, from their special education teacher role, or their, their uh, library media specialist role. And I think educational leadership preparation really transforms people's view to see schools as more complex, to see schools as multifaceted, to see schools as systems. Um, and now, I think there are two things that have happened uh, in addition on top of that is one, you know, roughly 20 years ago, people started thinking, wait a minute, good leadership has to involve instruction, right? Instruction is the key part of school uh, and that we can't think about school leadership without instruction. And so then there's this, this whole, you know, two decades conversation that good leaders in, in K-12 schools are instructional leaders. They understand instruction, they understand teaching, they understand content, and they, be, they play that kind of role that, that was absent 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think if we're going to if we're going to think if we're going to be more forward thinking, I think in the last ten years we've started to have a much richer conversation at universities and at school districts and at the school level that instructional leadership is also not enough, right? Is that we have to think about leadership for equity on top of that? It's not good enough to understand mathematics or the teaching of complex math for little kids. We have to think about issues of access to that, right? Who's getting access to the good stuff, right? Who's there, who's not, right? 
who's feeling welcomed in, in, in the district, in the school, in the classroom. So we, we think about issues of equity on top of instruction, and I think we have a much richer view. And that's the direction I feel the field is moving, uh, perhaps not as fast as some of us would like it. Yeah. And, you know, you said something really interesting about, you know, who gets access uh, to certain programs. And um, it is certainly a challenge, uh, a real challenging dilemma when you have someone who is a school building leader who, let's just call them progressive in thinking about Sure. Uh, a lot of issues from from discipline, you know, the way discipline is handled. Um, Absolutely. And also the way programming takes place. Um, I, I remember I, I used to be on a school board in Connecticut and, um, you know, there were there and, and as it very well should be there, we had community neighborhood level schools and but they were very different in the way. Um, uh, children had access to different programs, and we're talking, right. you know, talented and gifted, or or even music programs. And I'm I'm just Absolutely. kind of painting the back the background that um, I know in a lot of places that where you have someone who, as a principal who have uh, and they may have very uh, progressive ideals, but in a district where they they are in a district where you know the, it's not as as easy to implement <laughs> some of their 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 plans. Um, what are you right. doing to to try to prepare students for that real challenge of you know it's not we, you know we say equity but there, there's some real opponents to real equity. Uh, while no one would say I'm against equity, but they are against certain policies that are. Equitable practices. So, how, how do you prepare a leader for that? And what are you doing to prepare leaders for that challenge? I think that's such a good, such a, such a complex question. It's one of the things that led me into this field, right? Was to study people who had a real drive. I mean, that's what the book you, you started out with is about, right? The school leaders our children deserve. Uh, you know, principals who had a drive around issues of equity and justice, right? And and to understand how it looked in different settings and, and, and what they accomplished, but also to really look at what their struggles were, right? Because it's too easy sometimes to tell just the triumphant story. Uh, it makes it seem like that person's perfect. They're working in the perfect setting. But so what I was really interested also was in to see the struggles, to see where they found resistance, to see how they managed that, um, in part just because I was really curious, but in part it should help inform our, our preparation. And we certainly see some patterns, right, in principals who have these commitments and who are, doggedly working to sort of make their schools more equitable. I'm sure, you know, they're not perfect people, they're not perfect schools, but, but they have that commitment. And so, I mean, they identified barriers in a number of places, right? They identified barriers from, from colleagues, right, who don't share a vision, so they can't get enough momentum, whether they're in a medium-sized, small, or big district. Um, they certainly talk about a mismatch sometimes with uh, the district office, right, with mandates from the office, with reporting duties from the district office, sometimes with the vision uh, of the district. They sometimes talk about the mismatch with certain policy implementation that's come down from the state or feds uh, that, that, that they feel is taking up so much of their time that they're not able to do the work uh, that they feel is most important in terms of equity. So I think part of preparing is to not be, not be Pollyanna-ish, right? Is to say, yeah. this is yeah. the reality of the job. And to say, 
there's tremendous power here, right? We have example after example to show what you know, visionary, strong, dedicated leadership to equity can accomplish at the school level, at the district level. Uh, but we also have to be prepared for what it's going to feel like. Because one of the things we know is it feels lonely, right? You feel like you're out on the plank by yourself, right? You feel like you're fighting this battle over and over. You feel like you're fighting in your school. And with people, you feel, you feel this lonely sense that maybe I'm the only one who believes these things. And so people have to know that because that, that's a problem that's easily solved, right? We can build coalitions. We can find allies. We can find a couple of colleagues who have our back. But if, if we're not expecting to feel lonely, then we just get overwhelmed and we stop. Right? So I think part of preparation is understanding where the pressure is going to come from so we can think through them. Part of them is understanding the barriers like the loneliness to say, all right, I can be proactive about that. I can develop a network now. Um, and one of the things that I absolutely loved and I found so hopeful about studying principals who had done this work was they talk constantly about relationships, right? relationships with families and kids, relationships with staff, building this small network of people who were supportive other administrators, but they also saw those relationships as sort of like money in the bank, right? Like, I can get people to come along with me because we have a relationship. They might not buy in perfectly to our change in discipline, right? They might not buy in completely uh, to moving in a detract kind of system. You know, my supervisor might not love the fact that I really want to go to sort of inclusive ELL, but because I have relationships with these people, they're willing to come along. And, I, and, and that's hopeful because Building relationships is, is not as complicated as solving all of our world's problems, right? That's something that we can do. It's something we can do day in and day out that, isn't, that doesn't feel like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. Oh, absolutely. So I think there's a number of implications. Yeah. You know, um, we, we often struggle between trying to tell the reality of the story without not, and not do that too quickly because if, <laughs> right. if a lot of them knew – the job, how challenging the job was before, they might not take the job. You know, they may not <laughs> exactly. in their leadership practice. But what we try to balance it with is that, you know, the, 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 real, the real challenge right now for, for principals that more and more is being required of schools than has ever been right. required of schools before. So if right. you're leading that organization, and I, I, I like the, the fact that you said that they are complex organizations. We're, not, we're no longer talking about just places where people come and, and learn how to read. It's not that simple. Or right. learn math. Not that simple anymore. Um, but the expectations of, of what it means to have that job uh, are, are really high. And that's the reason I was... I was interested in hearing some of what you had to say about um, the the leaders they deserve and what some of those characteristics are. Do you, do you have if you if you can throw some of those things out so people out there know we have some people who are listening um, that are uh, aspiring leaders that they might listen to you today and say, you know, I need to work on that. What are, what are some of the things that you think? our schools really need that someone could do kind of almost a self-evaluation and say, is that me? Do I have that? Do I have the capacity to be or to, to know how to do that? What, what are some of the things you think are really required uh, from our principals today? Yeah, no, I love it. Yes, that actually. Um, I think 
Well, one, I mean, I've seen a number of things over time. I mean, some of the things that, that I've found when I've studied principals who do this work is certain patterns that have emerged, right? So one of the patterns I, I see is that uh, principals who are successful in moving their, their schools in a more equitable direction, they have this commitment to, to advancing inclusion and access and opportunity, right? That that is something that they're thinking about at all levels of an organization, uh, not only in terms of detracting math, right, or not only in terms of inclusive special ed, but they understand this issues of inclusion and access opportunity are fundamental. So that's, that's one thing I think we can, we can reflect on. I think another thing is, another pattern I saw from these principles was that they, they believed a lot of what we know about teaching and learning, too, is that we have to get better at, at doing the core things of our school. Right? We have to improve the core learning context. So obviously that's professional development, that's teaching, that's the curriculum. But they actually saw it as slightly, one of the things I, I was fascinated by, is slightly broader than that. They saw the core learning as the context, which meant the adults had to work together, right? Schools are complex, but they're also really collaborative. They weren't 30 years ago. They have to understand how to work together. And these principles almost always talk about, uh, in the context of, like, you know, the core learning of their schools, uh, issues of diversity and race, is that it, it's, it wasn't enough to get better at teaching literacy, it was also really important that they, with their faculties, they made sense of diversity and they made sense of issues of race, particularly if they were in diverse communities. Um, um, and that, that's, a, that's a big lift that, like, as you said, is not, it's not just teaching literacy or teaching math, right? It's changing the context where that happens. That's the second big pattern. Third big pattern was they really tried to establish, right, this climate of belonging at their school, right? Um, so between staff, between staff and administration, uh, different kinds of connections to community and family. Um, and so those are sort of the big three areas of patterns that emerge. And one of my favorite things about those three areas is none of it's rocket science, Brian, right? right. None of this is stuff we, we don't know. It's, it's, right. w w one of my favorite parts about this is, is in many ways these leaders were just doing lots and lots of the things we know matter. Um, and it wasn't good enough just to think about collaboration or just to think about uh, belong in their school. They had to do all these things simultaneously, which I think is, which is, gets to the point of the complexity, but it's not like there are things out there we just don't know, right? All of the, all of the things these principals were doing well, just make sense, and they're good, they're good, they're great practice, they're common sense, right. um, but right. they're complex, and it's, it requires doing lots of them. And, and another point that I want to get into uh, in a moment is about you know, the the work that often people don't think is the work of the school and and that actually has been and has become the work of the school requires that you have a principal who can recognize what's needed and and in yeah. some cases it is uh and I've seen in in both urban rural and suburban areas where principals are are helping parents learn parenting. And we're not just talking about parents, people who are, you know, uh, low social economic status or, you know, undereducated, but that you can't make any assumptions about what people right. know, say about parenting. And so when they recognize a pattern of, of behavior uh, from their school population, they have to know how can I solve this problem if if this is actually a problem that is a family problem, how do I solve the problem 
um, and, and be willing to put in place programming and activities that, that will make a difference. Uh, to, to our listeners we, that may have just joined us, uh, we have uh, Dr. George Steele Harris from Syracuse University, uh, professor um, who has studied and, and extensively uh, what principals are doing in the schoolhouse and what makes for a successful, effective uh, principal. And so we've been talking a little bit about um, George's uh, research and work in schools. Um, I want to shift just a little bit before we run out of time. Uh, before we came on air, George, you know, we, we, we had a brief exchange about uh, the topic equity. Uh, there are a lot yeah. of people right now in today's political climate, and it doesn't matter who who you are, what your um, you know, kind of your political lean is, um, that are concerned about uh, equity. And, right. and and I remember when I was in graduate school, one of the professors we uh, you may remember um, a, a psychologist from Yale by the name of Seymour Saracen, uh, sure. wrote, a book, uh, wrote a book that I remember called The Predictable Failure of Education Reform. And one of his, right. one, of the, one of the issues that he thought uh, kind of predicted the demise of education reform was the lack of focus on equity. And that there yeah. was a, there is and has been a real problem historically with the way we think about equity in schools. And, and by definition, it is, you know, it is the kind of the paradox is, is that what some people need can be perceived as unfair to others. You know, so you're giving right. more to the people who need more and who have kind of historically been underserved um, while others don't get as much. And, um, I, I just want to hear you. I, I know part of uh, what I read about also in some of your work was that um, you're also interested in, in studying um, equitable practices in among leaders in schools. So tell us what you found about that and, and recommendations you have for, for how, how to be an equity um, uh, conscious uh, leader in the school building. Yeah, well, I, 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 clearly that is the question that has driven me into educational leadership as a principal myself, an administrator, and uh, as the moved me into into higher ed. Uh, I've, I've come to understand a number of things. Some of them are straightforward. I, too, was influenced heavily by Saracen. I really like Saracen's talk about top-down and bottom-up, right? That's how we get real lasting change. It's right, it comes from multiple directions. And so I think part of what I understand about leaders uh, who have a commitment to equity is they do – um, a lot of work on themselves. Right? And so that's something that I know a lot of preparation programs are trying to do is for leaders to understand, understand themselves, understand where they fit, understand their identity, understand the way they move through the world, understand their worldview. Right? Because often uh, we, we all have blinders, right? We all have blinders on what, on what we think about and what we believe in. And so I think part of being a real equity-oriented leader is understanding ourselves, understanding our position in equity and our position in the world. And that comes, and that, that also means position around areas of difference, about race and class and sexual orientation and gender identity and religion. And so understanding ourselves in that way, I think it's really important because those things will be tested as you try and create equitable systems. 
Mm-hmm. I think another really important thing is for is for leaders and their and their systems to look at equity at multiple levels, right? So we have we have inequality and inequity that happens at the interpersonal level, right? I I might do something, or a teacher might do something that um, is discriminatory to a certain kid, right? Inter, interpersonal uh, inequality or discrimination. But then, and and we and we want to stop there, right? At at the interpersonal level. But we also know that school leaders of of schools and systems need to look at at inequality and equity at systems level. Like how how are we manufacturing inequity? Uh, at the, across a classroom or across the school. That's where we start seeing patterns of discipline, right? We see patterns of, of who doesn't have access to arts, of who doesn't have access to high-level math, right? We see inequity at those levels. And then we have to look at inequity and inequality, if we're going to be serious about this, um, uh, at, above a school level, right? At a, a neighborhood level, at a city level, at a metro area level, at a state level, to see what are the patterns that are happening. And I think leadership has responsibility to do all those things, right? We can't we can't only look at one area. We can't only look at interpersonal inequality or discrimination, and we can't only look at sort of statewide policy because mm-hmm. all these things come to play in a classroom, right? We know our segregated schools past has created a segregated school system now that plays out with access to math and arts and, mm-hmm. and special education in classrooms and schools around the country. So we have to think big, and we have to think locally. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a really important part of this. I think one of the tools that's evolved in the last 10 years that I know a number of leadership programs use is the idea of equity audits, right? And they mm-hmm. can happen at the very local level, right, where you audit classrooms and you audit practices and you audit who's involved in band, right, and who's involved in advanced placement chemistry, things like that. Um, and, you, and, you, and you count. And you can see the participation rates. Do they match the demographics of our school, right? Are, are our students at free and reduced lunch having an uh, equal representation to their percentage of the school in these mm. programs, right? Are African-American students having a representation in advanced placement English or in choir, things like that? So equity audits can be at that local level. They can be at a district level. They can be at a policy level when you look at certification and things like that. And I think those are handy tools. People have written about that for, I don't know, seven, eight, ten years now um, mm-hmm. that I know lots of people use in their programs because sometimes, like you said, we have commitments, we've done the work on ourselves, and having a tool that then gives us data is really helpful. So we can have a conversation in a system that might not be wanting to move forward, but you have the data to say, look it, right? 40% of our kids in special ed are spending all day not included, right? That's way out of whack with the rest of our state. So, so we're doing something differently, so let's change that, right? It gives you that data to have that conversation. It doesn't give you the answer, but it gives you the data to have a conversation that is that is that can be a really powerful catalyst. No, you're you're so right. And I wish, you know, we we if we had another three or four hours we could talk about uh, about it. You right. threw a lot you a lot out there and I, I agree, uh, especially um talking about the equity audit. We we both recognize that these are these are not easy things to accomplish given the high uh it, it, it's a it's a very difficult conversation to have. And I know that there are a lot of people around the country that are trying to have conversations about equity. They're, they're tough because on one side you have have parents who 
are are seeing themselves as victims and their families as victims and 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 others um who who feel that they they do deserve uh more resources uh because of their historic uh uh under under underperformance yeah. in some cases that's not because they weren't capable but all of the things that you mentioned like um how many students are participating in certain areas. I mean, it, we've, I, we've covered this on the show before about, um, I'm gifted, sure. you know, gifted and talented, uh, co- uh classrooms. Uh, we've talked about band. I had a, I had a woman who was uh, a teacher. Um, she wrote an article, uh, for Huffington post, um, and was on the show. Um, she was a teacher and she was talking about, you know, working in a high school in, in Georgia and, and that there was, she was still talking in terms of the white school and the black school. And, you know, she said, and, you know, she taught at the black school and she saw where books that were four or five years old textbooks that had come from across town. And this is all within one school district came from quote unquote, the white school to the black school. And they were using, yeah. this is in 20, you know, 2016 that this is happening. So there's right. still a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, issues when that, that have still been unresolved. And, and, and really, it's in, to a large degree, it is also in the hands of school boards and, and superintendents. But the on-the-ground, day-to-day, that is the yeah. school building leader, and that's the challenge we have: is preparing people in the school building to be able to implement those policies. Absolutely, right. And some of that is 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 noticing those patterns, like the teacher pointed out. Like, wait a minute, this is 2016, and we are operating under the patterns that were pre-Brown versus Board of Ed, right? That that case was decided based on things like that: the counting of resources and the the age of books. And so when right. we recognize that, wait a minute. There are areas we haven't we haven't made progress, even though we want to pat ourselves on the back. We have to say, all right, there are things I can change in my school, but there are also things that I have to be part of. This is why leadership is broader than administration, right? I have to be part of a larger conversation in my community, in my district, in my state. I have to speak out, um, and that's that's hard, right? I mean, it's it's not easy to sort of it's hard enough to lend your voice when you're in charge of a school and moving in a direction, but it's 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 differently hard to, to be outspoken in a community, in a city, in a metro area to say there are some things that we're doing collectively that are unjust. Um, but I think that kind of leadership, I mean, it requires courage, and it's, and it's what we need. But it's really hard. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, George, thank you so much. I mean, we're already out of time. I told you it would go. Um, it you would, did. You said it would fly by. It would go really quickly, and it would, and and it it really did. So glad that you took the time um, to be with us. We really appreciate it. I'm sure I got uh, people uh, uh, wrote to me saying you forgot to tell us to call in, um, and and I have people who who are waiting and wanted to, but we we're out of time. I will forward any. Uh, questions that people may have to you that I get in emails. Um, so we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day um, to to come and be with us. Um, for those of you who are listening, um, we uh, will be back next month, February 8th. We have uh, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who is a 
uh, well-recognized psychologist from the University of Pennsylvania, who's going to talk to us about uh, his new uh, definition of intelligence. Um, he'll be uh, February 8th at 2 p.m. Um, so we're, we're again, uh, George, thank you for coming. And for those of you who joined us late, listen in. We'll be back on February 8th, 2 p.m. Until that time, go well, stay well. Thanks, Brian.